Hi, everyone. This is Yonit, and this is a special episode of Unholy. As the war between Israel and Hamas enters its second month, it's clear that things will not be the same for Israelis and Jews outside Israel. So Jonathan and I decided to do something a bit different, air out feelings, angers, and frustrations that built up between the two of us. This isn't a debate. This isn't about winning the argument. It is about two friends trying to listen and understand, even when they disagree, even when it's difficult, and staying friends. So you and I, Yoni, have been doing this podcast for nearly three years. And through that, I think we've got to know each other uh, very, very well. And one thing that I think listeners have reported back is they have spotted that the last three weeks have been difficult for them and they thought for us. And, you know, it's been an observation that a few of our listeners have made that is there a kind of, beyond just talking about this, these awful events, is there a kind of tension between you and me? And because we talk a lot, even outside the podcast, we both thought it might be an idea to at least address that and say, well, is there? And what if there is, what it might it be about? Because, and I don't think it's actually, you know, even an over-reading of it, what you and I are sort of doing on this podcast is a conversation we always said from the beginning that was only ever rarely happening. In, in other words, a real proper two-way conversation between the Israel and the Jewish diaspora, who have often talked at each other, but very rarely talked with each other. We've been doing that for three years. It was pretty smooth sailing, relatively speaking. But October 2023, things in many, many ways, in all kinds of ways, much more serious than one podcast, became incredibly hard for people. And we're part of that. So we thought we would do something a bit different. And and in a way, it was your idea. So you might as well say something about the very specific way you were conceiving of it. No, I mean, so much has changed, as you said, on October 7th in both our worlds. And we spoke about it uh, on the podcast, but some of it uh, was unspoken. And we kind of decided to air our differences between kind of our points of view. Um, not only, you know, this is so counterintuitive to the way that I grew up from a Eastern European family, Jewish family, where everything has to be bottled up and stuck in the last drawer and never opened again, but actually to do the opposite, to talk about what we are going through and how we see it differently, maybe as a way to also help our listeners who might have be having the same conversation between their families in Israel and in the other half of the Jewish world in diaspora. So I think we're calling it um, war therapy <laughs> or wartime therapy. And uh, this is a complete experiment for us. So let's get started. Um, Jonathan, how do you feel? <laughs> Well, even you asking me that question first feels wrong to me. And that's because of something that I think has definitely gone through our conversations, which is guilt on my part. And I think, again, diaspora Jews feel this about Israel, which is we're not there. We're not where you are. We weren't mortally struck on the 7th of October. Yes, we have family and friends, but it didn't happen a 20-minute drive away from us, an hour drive away from us. It didn't happen to our, you know, in, well, obviously in some cases, but for men, for most diaspora Jews, it didn't happen to our nearest and dearest. So that immediately creates a kind of guilt feeling. And when we took listeners' questions, there was one incredibly moving one from a 16-year-old who called in saying she herself felt a kind of survivor guilt. And I think that is, you know, replicated probably in Israel itself, by those people who didn't themselves get caught up in it. Uh, but there's a diaspora version of it. So I feel, even just you ask me how I feel, it feels ridiculous for you to ask me how I feel first. You, you know, it's much more relevant how you feel. And I have felt that in our conversations, that you're the one who's going through it. I'm not. Mm -hmm. Although, and we'll come on to this, we're going through quite a bit uh, outside Israel, but it's not the same. It's not the same. I think it's uh, two halves of the same story. It's interesting to me how when this all started, the um, WhatsApp messages were from your side to me, 
And then after a few days, I think it was a week, maybe a little bit more, where I suddenly said, wait a minute, how are you guys doing? Because suddenly that became the story of what is, uh, what, what are we seeing in diaspora against Jews there? We talked about this a little bit on the podcast. We did about how Jews feel unsafe. But there was something, I think, between you and me that um, that was more you know, my emotional response, which I don't, I mean, I remember us disagreeing about topics, obviously, uh, you know, three years, you find yourself disagreeing on occasion. But something about this, and about, to me, I think, feeling at a specific moment, like, wait a minute, I'm not sure we're on the same page. And we really should be on the same page when it comes to the story. I think that is what kind of shook me and maybe led to this attempted conversation. Yeah. So let's, I mean, on, on, on those things, I felt that sometimes that I would be, well, first of all, I, if to, there's two different forms of this, one is if I would be, and I often do criticize Israeli government policy until October the 7th, I think you understood that that was what I was doing. I was criticizing the decision makers, Netanyahu, the government, the, even the military brass. And you would give a different analysis or whatever. Now, I felt as if me saying that was somehow as if I was criticizing you. And you felt that you, Yoni Levy, needed to reply to me and defend yourself. And I was well, I was never talking about you. I was talking about the people who had made, you know, made the decisions of the last weeks and usually months and years, you know. And that was a new thing. That was one thing. Mm -hmm. And then the other thing, which is in some ways the other side of the same coin, would be I would be relaying to you what is the discussion here, and by here I really mean that outside Israel, brackets, the all Jews were having to deal with, which was a humanitarian catastrophe unfolding in Gaza, which is leading the nightly news every single night, and which Jews then get blamed for, by the way. And I would be bringing that into the conversation. And you were thinking, he's not just saying that the BBC and the New York Times are saying that, he's now saying it. So both of us sort of removed what had previously been the barrier. So there was me, then the Israeli government, then your neat. And I would be criticizing the Israeli government. Suddenly the barrier gone, you thought I was attacking you. Mm -hmm. And similarly, there's you, me relaying what the world's media and politicians in the UN are saying, and then me behind that. And you took out the in-between layer and thought, I'm disagreeing with him. And so that's, it suddenly became that we couldn't anymore just say, here's you and me, Yoni and J Jonathan pointing at some external actor, Netanyahu, the UN, the world, world media. All of that went out and it was suddenly, I'm attacking you, you're attacking me. And I think that's how we both felt. And we sort of responded in our own different cultural ways um, <laughs> as if we felt... Uh, on, on the defensive or even under attack. I agree with you. And I think that one of the problems, particularly for me, was that I, um, I use this interchangeably and I used to say you, and you would say, what do you mean you, you is you? So for this conversation, let's make clear that when I say you, I mean you, Johnny. And when I say the world, it's the world. And uh, well, you know, and vice versa, when you say you need to mean me and when you say Israel, I know, obviously, I, you know, emotionally, I have to say that on a regular day, I remember those days once existed, on a regular day, there is no creature on earth more critical of the of the Israeli government than the Israeli journalist. But something happened in a way that I'm not saying that I'm not critical of, of the Israeli government, but 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 the meshing of me, the personal me, and the country has obviously become a much more, you know, a closer thing because now my country is in danger. So that makes sense that whatever you say. And by the way, some of what you said about humanitarian issues were not just Johnny watching the BBC. It was what you think, which is fine. That's true. But, you know, so so that I, I agree that I heard a lot of what you said as you saying it to me, Yonit, instead of saying it uh, to Netanyahu, for instance. That's That's for sure. And it's interesting you mentioned, you go with the humanitarian point, because that can... It's true. That isn't just me saying, look, the world's media are saying X. Mm -hmm. 
I myself with, am, am feeling in it. Um, to this day, and I've asked lots of people, not just you, I still haven't had anyone explain to me a good, from Israel's own point of view, strategic, military, military, public diplomacy, for their own reasons, a good reason why the humanitarian blockade had to be uh, enforced the way it's been enforced. I still just don't really get it. I know the arguments we've had them on the podcast about, you know, Hamas have got fuel, so you don't need to give them more fuel. I still just think the, well, I'll say the politics point, then the personal point. I do not know why you would do that when part of this war is about winning over global hearts and minds. And on day one, the narrative of we're fighting Hamas, we're not fighting the Palestinian people. Good narrative. People got that. But that has completely gone because of this. And on my view, if I'd been in charge, I'd been saying, send the fuel in. They've got it anyway. It's not going to make any difference. But at least this way, we won't have the world's people thinking we are somehow lack, so lacking in compassion that we are allowing these people, not Hamas, to be desperate. Uh, and we know that Hamas have food and fuel and they should be sharing it. But given they're not, we're going to send that in. I don't get why Israel didn't do that. But I've said, so that's the sort of policy point. The personal point is, in a way, when I felt that, and I, it's again, not just you, when Israelis are quite sort of brisk with that point and sort of push it to one side and say, can we just remember who the victims are here, please? It's us because of the grievous atrocities that were done to us on October the 7th. Let's put the focus back on that. The problem I have with that is, and this again, it's, there's the guilt in even mentioning it because it's nothing compared to what you and your country went, have gone through. The blowback of that is felt by Jews here. And that is a real world thing going on. At first, I thought it was maybe a, some people get carried away and hysterical and everything, but it really is happening. And, you know, I speak to people in my own family who have taken to wearing a COVID-style mask on the underground so that people won't see their face, so that they won't be recognised as Jewish. That has never happened before. You know, I'm a man in my mid-50s. I've never had members of my own family telling me they're hiding being Jewish when they travel in the underground. I heard this week of a synagogue that has very discreetly covered up the sign that identifies it as synagogue and put on a more generic name instead, as if it's just a generic building. And there are countless examples of that. People whose workplace uh, dynamics and relationships are really strained. People thinking, do they need to move jobs? And, you know, people, and that's on before we even get to kids not going to school because their parents are worried about safety, all of that stuff. That happens to Jews in this country in part because people are horrible and anti-Semitic and nothing would change, but also in part because every single day on the news are the consequences of uh, Israel's actions, some of which diaspora Jews would be ready to defend and uh, to the hilt, but some they are really struggling to try and explain to themselves, let alone their friends, why it is that 2.3 million people can't get proper supplies of medicine. We get you can't stand Hamas. We get you've got to hit back and eradicate them. But people don't get that. And they, diaspora Jews, if I'm going to put it, put it provocatively, they pay the bill for that. You pay the bill for everything else and it's much, much worse. But in terms of the, the sort of humanitarian stuff, that is felt by Jews around the world, including people very close to me. So, I mean, this is a real salient point. What you're saying is, that because of Israel's humanitarian actions or lack thereof vis-a-vis -vis the Palestinians, the price is being paid by uh, diaspora. I'm just wondering, what about the... Well, you know, one uh, of the prices. Paid. But No, but I mean, what about the campaign that started even before Israel started this war against... I mean, we, we saw... Um, demonstrations in Sydney and in London and in so many other yep. cities before this started. So doesn't yeah. that mean something? That it definitely, this definitely. Just needed, so that's why I was trying to distinguish. an excuse? Yeah, no, definitely. I was trying to distinguish. There's hardcore, I think you could let's say it, I mean, there's hardcore anti-Semites who were ready to celebrate on October 7th before Israel had done anything. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. That was one thing, bad enough, horrible. 
the 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 idea of that becoming more and more widespread and people who of course do not celebrate october 7th but just think what the hell is this mm -hmm. that reaches many more people when it is day 25 of footage showing children and families who are to the naked eye not hamas terrorists deprived starving suffering diseased 2.3 million people cooped mm. up can't get out and so on so it's but it means that suddenly you're dealing with your colleague your neighbor your personal work not the fanatic yeah. who goes onto the streets of london or sydney with a you know victory to the resistance banner on october the 8th not them we mm. knew about them mm -hmm. we knew about them but this is wider and you know i i see people sort of you know making heroic efforts to try and explain this and justify it but it's difficult and the the fundamental difference is what happens for israelis what happened on october 7th is so much more worse and gr but the mourning that i think i wasn't sensitive to with you the fact that you were basically in mourning and i you know i should have just talked to you and every other israeli like you would talk to somebody in mourning um that is very much worse the difference between us is you are surrounded by people who are going through that with you and are mm -hmm. broadly sharing the same feeling you walk out the street every israeli is going through this together for a diaspora Jew, you're not in that position. You're mm -hmm. surrounded by people who are not feeling the way you're feeling. And that's why it's really interesting anecdotally, and not just anecdotally, synagogue attendance is really up <laughs> here in Britain. And I bet it's the same. I think community. I've read it in America as well. Yeah. People need to be around other Jews. And they and in Israel, you have that already. So you know that everyone feels the way you do broadly. Mm -hmm. And of course, there's nuanced arguments. But to be outside that is to be surrounded by people who basically, even the ones who are very well-intentioned, will be thinking, uh, yeah, yeah, really horrible, happened on 7th of October. But this, it's already, you know, six times the number, they'll be saying, five or six times the number dead. You know, what are you guys really up to here? And that's a different experience. Yeah. Uh, just as a side note, I mean, I have a lot to say, <laughs> a lot to unpack, but just as a side note, it's amazing how um, Israelis are demanded to be, and they, I think they do uh, still have room for empathy for the other side, but it's amazing that somehow we need to have more empathy for the other side than the other side's leaders. That is something that I find quite surprising. Yeah. Um, but I... Listen, I, I well, not really that surprising that you would want Israel and Israelis to be better no, than Hamas. No, no, but just uh, yeah, but I'm just saying, but this is Hamas's fault. And but listen, I want to zoom out for a second. I think to me, what you just said sort of alleviates some of what was bothering me because I, I felt, at least for the first time that we were talking about the the humanitarian aid on the podcast, I think what made me so upset was the fact that really now you put that in words that I was I was mourning and that that after a few minutes we suddenly had to go into this cycle of discussion about the humanitarian issue. Um and and I kind of want to zoom out because I think this is one of the main things I've been feeling and this is that has to do with you Johnny not only the world. We we ask ourselves a lot, you know, what does Israel want? What is Israel's intentions? What's the end game? And I kind of want to flip this on its head and ask, what does Hamas want? What does Hamas want? Why did Hamas perpetrate this opening strike of massive proportions, of a, of a barbaric, sadistic torture of civilians? What did they want? They must have known that this would be the response. I even assume that they knew that this might be the response in college campuses and among some liberals around the world. What did they want? The answer, you know, said by one of Hamas's, you know, even political wing leaders, uh, Ghazi Hamid, was we want to annihilate Israel. That's mm -hmm. the answer. Why am I saying this? Because they met with Hezbollah leaders a month ago. This all looks like a m planned attempt to annihilate Israel. I'm not speaking in hyperboles. I'm not an hysteric person. You know me I've, for a while. But this is what they want. This is much bigger than this cycle 
of violence. Again, I hear, I hear a lot of this discussion in the United States. We have to prevent another cycle. This is not another cycle of violence. This is war. And we are, we Israelis, using the royal we here, <laughs> are in, a, in the most precarious position, I think we can agree on this, that we've been in the last 50 years. Yeah. In my living memory, for sure. And I feel like when you and I have this discussion about the trickling of the trucks in the Rafa crossing, if there's 10 trucks or 100 trucks or 20 trucks or 30 trucks, we are missing the point. The point is that everyone from Hillary Clinton to Blinken to Biden, not exactly hawkish Republicans, are all saying, you need to eradicate Hamas, get rid of these guys. But the discussion about the humanitarian issue means that there is a, a stopwatch saying, okay, well, let's, let's get, let, come on, did you, could you, could you finish it? We can't finish it. Al-Qaeda took years to, to eradicate. So did, so did uh, Daesh. What do you mean finish it? And I kind of feel, and this is now tying back to our relationship and conversation, I think more conversation than relationship here in this case, that if we were in the same room and I could, you know, put my hands on your shoulder, you're very, you're much taller than me, so we'd have to do the sitting down. And I could shake you a little <laughs> bit and say to you, Johnny, the world has changed. We are not in this discussion. I, I get that the BBC showed pictures of humanitarian. We are not in this discussion of, of this terminology of humanitarian. We're not here. We are in, in a huge, really quasi-existential war. And I just feel like when I read, I'm like, I, I'm get going to places that we may might not want to go to. But I, when I read your column, and it's always beautifully written, right? I mean, it's never not beautifully written. It's a Jonathan Friedland column. But when it talks about the tragedy of both sides, which isn't wrong, it's just not the whole story. And I just, I keep having this feeling like, I don't know if I'm explaining this correctly, but that you sympathize with me and you feel some of it, obviously, some of the blowback. But I don't know if you, if you truly get it. <laughs> you know, I, I just, that, that is what, what bothers me. I just don't know. Yeah. Well, you have gone there. So, and that's good that you've done that. Um, <laughs> you mean good in the well, British sense, right? That you no, don't I like that I went there. Well, so you may partly. I think that I understand you, the, what you're saying completely. And to me, it is clear that Hamas wants to eradicate Israel. I think part of its method, by the way, is to get Israel to come into Gaza and, and, and do what it's doing now. I think it's part of the method. To delegitimize Israel in the eyes of the world is part of the game plan for them. But I, I agree that it's an ISIS-style threat, completely agree with that, and that you cannot have Hamas being a fighting force any longer capable of doing what they did on October the 7th. Totally agree. Once again, though, I do not understand why as part of that effort, you have to have a 10-year-old in Khan Yunis deprived of medicine. I just don't get why that is part of that fight. And not only that, I've really been struck by this. In all the coverage can, can I just pause hostile, for a second? Just for, can I pause for a second and just say? That okay. The 10-year-old the in Khan Yunis, which I, I feel for, had the idea of tell them to move south. I I'm wish, I wish, I wish, no, no, I'm just saying, I wish I'm, that the 10 year old in Israel had that same warning. I really wish. Of course. Okay. Because, because we, you know, Israel is, wants to be on, judged and be on a different moral plane from the cruelest, most sadistic butchers that, you know, we've seen not ever in human history, but right up there. So, of course, Israel is not on to be judged on that plane. And doesn't want to be judged on that plane. It's different. It's a state actor, right? It's acting differently. Explain to me why, as part of the existential fight against a movement that wants to eradicate every Israeli, why it's necessary to deprive not the not Hamas, but the civilian population of Gaza. It has meant 
that the people who are really inclined to be sympathetic to Israel are, 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 are not able to be as sympathetic as they would otherwise be. I was on a Zoom call, private Zoom call, that included a senior figure from the US military who had been involved in the fight against ISIS. And he was trying to say to others on the call, the second you gain any ground at all, you should do what we did, which is we came in straight away with ambulances, medical aid, uh, you know, te teams to assist the civilian infrastructure. This is what we did, he said, against ISIS. You need to do this because you need to tell the local people your issue is not with them. It's with the people who have been oppressing them, ISIS and so on. He said that is, this was a military man. This wasn't some Medsans on Frontier NGO. So the war, so when you want to grab me by the shoulders, I get that. But I think you think I don't get the war on Hamas, and I do. I want to see Hamas destroyed. I really do get that. I just don't see why Israel is currently at war with the people of Gaza because that's what it looks like, and that's the bit where I think you that it's in that daylight between Hamas on the one and Gaza the other that you and I have found ourselves going in different ways because. I'm much more with you than perhaps you realize on the one, but I cannot see the logic of the other. Just can't see it. Goldemir had this line that's been quoted a few times this week. It's like, if we had to choose between being dead and pitied and being alive with a bad image, we'd rather be alive and have the bad image. This week, you know, since October 7th, we've also discovered it doesn't matter if we're dead, we're not pitied anyway. So the dilemma is not as, becomes much more clear. It's not really a dilemma. Look, there are serious people in Israel, serious people who used to be belong to the defense echelon, who think that the fact that there are 240 hostages held by Hamas, abducted and held by Hamas, including 30 children, the youngest of which being 90 months old, none of them after 26 days have seen the Red Cross. No one knows, actually no one has, a list of the names, and no one knows what their situation is. That alone, that alone could have been an excuse for Israel to say, nothing's coming in, nothing's coming in until you give us the list of these people and you tell us how they're doing. There are serious people who think that. There are people in this country who say, until you give us back our hostages, nothing, nothing. Now, of course, the logic on the other hand is, you are not in war, at war with the people of Gaza. You're at war with Hamas. I think we, we can discuss how much we're not going to do it here in this therapy session, but how much the support is. But of course, we're not in war at war with, with the people. And because of that, Israel decided to basically cut the, the Gaza Strip in half and say, south to this point, people will go. They will have safe zones. They will have food. They will have water. They will have, you know, they will have everything they need. And it's in Israel's interest for them to go there. That's why they have everything they need. They Northern don't have everything they need in the uh, South. Okay. They don't. Okay. Okay. Yeah, that, I mean, that's a good thing. If that was the promise, that would have been okay. good, but that now, has not happened. Now, you, you can agree with me that this could take a little bit of time just for the sense of the fact that Israel is not putting in trucks through the Rafah crossing in Egypt without checking these trucks because obviously everything is taken by Hamas. And because Hamas does have all of this for its people, but it's not doing yes. it. And you just heard uh, uh, Musa Abu Marzouk, again, one of the heads of Hamas, saying on television, when asked, tell me something, sir, why did you build only tunnels for your Hamas people, yeah. but never built one bomb shelter for your own population? He said, for us, we're being attacked. The population could be looked after by the UN, okay? Yeah. So this is the situation we are in. And I think that the... Again, I understand that the, the media is focused on this, but you are also focused on this. But I also think that we somehow need to zoom out a little bit from this. I understand nothing else is being said or, or seen, but this will, this is important for Israel too. I think Israel should be judged by what it does and not by what it says, because particularly in the first days of the war, this whole country was in shock and understandably. But again, what we agree on, I think, is that if you arrive at a situation where the people in the southern part of Gaza, and of course I'm never hearing the word Egypt here in any way, right? No one is ever saying, hey, how about Egypt chip in, help a little bit. But this is this could be helpful. Now, I, I, I sort of want to move our conversation to another dangerous place. May I? 
Yeah, I, uh, before you do, um, okay. I just want to say two things because you mentioned the column as well. The The point is that there's a fundamental, I think, misconception, which is just, I find so hard, which is, to me, the idea of exerting pressure on the people as a means of exerting pressure on Hamas is to fundamentally misunderstand Hamas who want their but is, own but people not, to suffer. Right, but no, it's important I say this. I important I say this because I think there's an attempt you would like to cast me as somehow naive about these things. And as if that I think that Hamas is some, you know, that I've got some sort of uh, kumbaya view of this enemy, which I really don't. I understand how how evil and ruthless they are to the point where they want their own people to die and suffer on screen. It works for them. It doesn't act exert pressure. If you want the hostages out, making 2.3 million people suffer doesn't help. It makes Hamas happier, not sadder. So it is so wrong-headed, and we're people who are, you know, bound up with Israel and care deeply about it are watching week after week of Israel on embarking on a course that only makes Hamas stronger. We're not doing it because we want to, you know, win the Nobel Peace Prize and everyone should love each other. It's we want to see Hamas defeated. And at the moment, Israel's doing something which actually helps them. And it helps them by making them look uh, as if they are an injured party here. But it also helps them because their own people suffering is useful for them. It never makes them bend. And that's partly for the reason you said, which is they're protected. They're sitting there in their tunnels with their food supplies and their fuel. They're feeling none of this. So that's one thing. The other point on you said about the column about the two, you know, a tragic collision of two just causes. In case people haven't read it, which is probably most people listening to this. It wasn't saying the Hamas cause, God forbid. Well, it was saying the cause of Palestinians, the cause of Jews in the land of his, you know, the land of Israel and historic Palestine have collided. And, and it is a tragic thing that these two peoples are colliding there. I was saying that there in The Guardian because right now, the if you're not careful, the runaway view that is growing and building, and we talked about it in other parts of the podcast, is that Israel is some alien, foreign, uh, imperialist, colonialist, artificial country that has been implanted in the Middle East, probably by the British. And therefore, the best way this gets resolved is if it just quietly exits the stage. That view is gaining respectability in all kinds of places, which it falls on people, you know, who have a public platform, if they have one, like me, to push back on that and say, no, that's not true. So in a headline like that, where I'm saying there's two just causes, you're hearing what? He's saying, giving some credence to the other side. On the contrary, the greed is thinking, what? There's some justice on the Israeli side? I never thought of that. That's the difference between the environment we're both in. Mm -hmm. I'm having to speak to people whose starting assumptions are 100% opposite to your starting assumptions. That makes a really, really big difference into the two sort of environments you and I are both in. I completely agree. And and I think that that is a case in point of, of course, we're what, what we're talking about. I am sure. I, look, I've been reading you for years. I know what it looks like when you're trying to say, or let's say, what you need to write in order to say what you want to say. I appreciate parts of that article. And of course, to me, in the middle of a war, to read the tragedy of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is the clash of two just causes is difficult. From the other side of what the, you could completely accurately said, the other side of what the, let's say, average Guardian reader would be upset about. I know. But this is, this is what I, where I'm seeing it from. And, and it leads me to talk about blame because you said it before in this conversation and you said that the blowback that the Jewish community feels is essentially connected to the humanitarian situation in Gaza. What I, that I discern from that is that Israel, if Israel had been smarter or acted more I don't know, compassionate with compassion or anything, then the community outside Israel would not be suffering. Can I, can I put that aside for a sec? Yeah. And then add something else into that mix. 
this is becoming a very volatile. It's like Mentos and cola. Um, I think that maybe you think that if there was no occupation, this would never have happened. Am I right about that? No, not. I okay. mean, that's where. Okay, that's really interesting. Continue the thought, and then I'll come back. Or is so, that the thought? No, I'm just I'm, I'm developing something here, because then what it says to me, if that is something that, because of course there are people who think that, and then it adds on both of these kinds of things that we just put aside. Add to Israel is in a way to blame not only for what happened, but to the now blowback against the Jewish community. And if some part of you feels that, then I think we shouldn't, we, we should talk about that. Like, I, that's what I mean by what I, I see. Say. And the You're fact right. that you tweeted out, and this is really from the, my best friend and I have this uh, funny thing where we say we, we're taking it from the drawer that's labeled petty and small thoughts. So from the petty and small thoughts, the fact that you tweeted this week, again, in the middle of a war, your praises for a book about the terrible Israeli occupation leads me to tie that into this story. I mean, are they, are the review of that book is unfortunate timing. This is a review I wrote of Nathan Thrall's book, A Day in the Life of Abid Salama, which is about the West Bank, and it's about an episode in 2012. It's unfortunate timing for him and his book that it's come out now, because it's going to be viewed entirely through this lens. And I did think about that, and I didn't tweet it till quite some time after the review had been published. And then thought, the, the, the arguments that are made in that book still stand. If I thought they were good when I read it before October the 7th, I can't resile from that now. The facts it describes were facts when I read the book. And even though the environment is different now, I felt I had to stand by that. But I wasn't saying, you know, if you want to know what's the real cause of the current war, you need to read this book. I didn't say that. And that would have been mistake to do that. It was about something quite discreet in the sense of ETE. I say that for our English speakers who aren't as skilled in the language as you. Is a separate thing, I think. To your quite bigger question, though, of your sense that I think this wouldn't have happened had it not been for occupation. So a big formative experience in my life was in the 1990s and my 20s. I was a correspondent in Washington, and by Strange fluke, I ended up covering two peace processes for the Guardian newspaper. One was the Northern Ireland peace process, which ran through Washington and ran through Bill Clinton's White House. And the other was the then Oslo process, which after Norway ran through Washington and Bill Clinton's White House. And I covered both. And, and the Lewinsky affair, worked. if the years are correct, right? But you, that well, was, that was that 98. Was I'd, already, okay. I'd already gone back. Okay. Just but I did, I came back the mood here. Okay. Yeah, I came back for that a bit. That was good fun. <laughs> um, seemed so serious at the time, though. Um, I covered those two peace processes. One worked, one didn't. In both cases, there were people who were wholly committed to the destruction, the um, even murderous destruction of the other side. And what happened in the case of Northern Ireland, which was the one that worked, is those people, they always existed, crazy people, psychopathic killers, they got sh smaller and smaller and smaller. They became more and more marginal. They shrank to the edges in terms of who they could recruit from, who would ever listen to them. They still exist, those groups. They killed a journalist not, you know, two, three years ago. They still exist, but the waters in which they swam were drained over a period of years. During that peace process, confidence building measures, each side making the other side look good in the eyes of their people by extracting concessions that the other side needed and wanted, never undermining each other, and showing to the other side, you know what, this actually works. And you can get a life from this. You've given up, each side had to give up things. But at the end of it, the people of crazy hatred were rendered small and irrelevant. Mm -hmm. Had, and I don't just blame Israel for this, but let's say the Camp David Peace Summit had actually resulted in a deal. And we you know don't it didn't. Just blame Arab, Israel for it? 
I you know I think there's a lot of blame to go around, and Arafat probably bears the greatest blame for that. But my it didn't you know we can reel it together. It's a whole other topic. Um, in terms of you know uh, arriving unprepared for Camp David, doing too soon, settlements expanding from ninety three to two thousand. You know we can do all that. The point is, it didn't bear fruit, and the twenty five years we have witnessed since have made the people who are on the peacemaking side shrink and look small and failed and feeble by every policy move that's happened. And the people who say you can never make peace with them and eradication and genocide and we must kill all the Jews have been able to thrive and prosper because they've been able to say, look at what's going on. You know, the blockade for 15 years, co-authored by Egypt, we agree. And settlement expansion and so on you know when you don't have peace and cooperation you create conditions in which the extremists can flourish and so hamas which i believe is and have written is a curse on the palestinian people have been able to expand and thrive and grow uh so of course not. If you look at now, would occupation made any difference? No, it didn't make any difference to the murderous intent of those killers. They were going. They want Israel, all Israel dead. They want all Jews dead. I get that. I'm not stupid. But those people have been able to expand and have greater purchase and reach on Palestinian hearts and minds because of everything that's happened these last 25, 30 years. The way peace processes work is they expand the space for moderation, they make moderates look good, and they make crazies look marginal. And when you don't have it, the exact opposite happens. But last thing, on your point about would I think occupation would have made a difference, the reason why the last three weeks have been really difficult for people like me is that outside the country, let's not talk about Hamas, that horrible realisation that actually to a lot of people, there isn't any distinction. And the residents of Kibbutzberry are, in their view, as illegitimate as they've always been saying they feel about settlers and settlements on the West Bank. And so that realisation that actually, ah, their beef is not just with the occupation, it's with the entire thing, that has been... Uh, a horrible realization. Again, I think it's not a real a, a position that people would have gone to if what had happened in Northern Ireland in ninety eight had happened in Israel Palestine in nineteen ninety eight. Um, th- there are two things I, I, I want to just add to the analysis of of peace versus murderous intent, which is Hamas always hit Israel when things grew closer to peace. 100%. And it doesn't do this because of the occupation. It does it when it thinks the occupation might end. This is what they do. This is what they did in the 90s. 100%. This is what they did after Camp David. This is what they did after the disengagement. This is what they're doing now when they saw the prospects yes, of a peace with Saudis time. and we, that was supposed to actually benefit the Palestinian people. This is what they do every time. And I mean, first of all, I'm, I'm you know, I'm sort of glad to hear what you said because I I had this lingering question in my mind and I sort of didn't know how to ask it in a way that doesn't sound Israeli. And of course I did ask it in a way that sounds Israeli, which is okay. Um, but but Which was what what was no, that? No, the way I would ask him about occupation. I just, you know, I just had yeah. to ask it. So I, I asked it. That's what I did. Um but I I there's something that that is sort of in my head and from the beginning of our conversation. And it, you know, I'm trying to tie it together because what Hamas is doing here is they're not just doing it to us Israelis. They're doing it to us, the Jewish people. And you hear, I mean, this kind of murderous ideology, which of course, I'm not saying that there's not a national conflict Israeli-Palestinian element here, but on top of that, there is a jihadist, murderous, religious ideology that doesn't stop. I mean, when you, when you understand what the Muslim Brotherhood is and Hamas being a radical part of it, this doesn't stop with Israel. This doesn't stop with the Jewish people. You hear the imams in London. You hear this extreme conversation in London. And this is, again, what Hamas is doing to Israelis. It is doing to the Jewish people and maybe even beyond. And to me, just what sort of, makes me sad is the fact that you feel like the problem here is the pictures of the 
is Israel not being smart with humanitarian aid. We're actually, I think, again, it's bigger than that. It's a bigger problem than that. And that is why, I mean, again, if you look at, again, facts, again, what has been going on in the last two years, the trajectory is that Benjamin Netanyahu would have given Hamas everything for peace and quiet. He was talking about gas drills in the sea. He was talking about a port for Gaza. There were 20,000 workers coming in and, of course, using their permits to uh, spy and, and find information about the kibbutzim at the southern part. This is where Israel wanted to go. And yeah, Hamas this, decided. Uh, but, but, I, so but I don't know if it's is, a good. No, I don't know. I guess it's not. You don't think it's a good claim. No, I think, I think what thing, you've just, just said. Saying that the, what, no, no, but what you've just said actually, I think, makes my point. He bent over backwards to make Hamas look great in the eyes of their own people. My grievance with Netanyahu is he may he humiliated and constantly belittled and made look small the secular nationalists compromised two state crowd of Fatah and Ramallah. He made them look like idiots patsies who got nothing. Hamas, who believe in killing and murdering Israeli civilians, I mean, you got the, they got the disengagement in 2005, they got Qatari money, they got the compromises of p- permits and people getting out. He, he, and there is that devastating quote from 2019, never denied, from Netanyahu to Likud uh, party officials, in which he says, if you want to stop a Palestinian state, build up Hamas. You've got to want Hamas if you want to there to never be a Palestinian state. This, to me, is not just a tragic error. It's a criminal error by him. And he, for, he's been leading the Jewish people on and off, you know, for much of the last 25 years through by being prime minister of Israel. And he made this catastrophic, historic error, which, and my worry is that the people who were ready to do a deal. And we know that Arafat in the end was not ready to sign on, and that is their tragic error. But in terms of our tragic error, there was maybe just this one generation of secular Palestinian nationalists who, you know, we've all, you and me, we've had conversations with many of those people going back many decades. They were in the compromise business. You know, we can talk about how they got there, they had given up on armed struggle. They had made their peace with having 22% of historic Palestine. The Israeli and Jewish response should have been, now, thank God, let's get them to sign and shake hands. Do this deal now when? for our when? sake. What, and year? Inst- what year? I- I'm talking about an era. I mean, okay. you know, they made the Algiers Declaration, which they accept the six seven borders in 1988. Sure, it went but then right when through. Rabin wanted that deal, and then of there course. Were, we know how this went. Hamas exploded, sabotaged this every single uh, time, at every junction. All, I know, but there are always people like that. That happened in the Northern Ireland case. The real IRA were blowing up people in Oma. I covered it. I was one, there 1, in, 000, in 1998. Yeah, I remember that story, but it was 1,500 people or a little bit less? No, 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 it okay. wasn't. But there are always, and that, the, look, Northern Ireland never reached the stage of bloodshed that has happened in Israel-Palestine. So I know it's uh, it's not the same. But the point is there were always people who want to wreck it, but you have to stay firm against the wreckers and say, reach out to the person who is the person who wants to do the deal with you. And in this case, there were the secular nationalists. I'm going beyond just individuals, talking about a period in history. You know that line that is always quoted, Abba Iban, the Palestinians never miss an opportunity to miss an opportunity. I grieve at the fact that I think Israel and the Jewish people missed those opportunities. And they it was a window that opened. It happened when I was 21 years old in 1988, and it closed in the last few years, I fear. And instead, we thought, let's make the crazies look great in the eyes of their own people. And so the genocidal, murderous fanatics of Hamas were rewarded and pumped up and up and up. And the people who are actually ready to shake hands on a deal weren't. And that's because... In the end, I think, and it's there in those, you know, this the quotes from Netanyahu and the others, this, it's almost like something out of the a Bible story of the sort of idol worship of the settlements and thinking that we will lose them if we have to concede to a Palestinian state. We want those. We want it all. And in wanting it all, we've lost the chance perhaps to have anything in peace. And I, that really grieves me. I worry that they'll, you know, for my, I look at my children and wonder if their children will even know a kind of the state of Israel, whether it will exist. I mean, this is the kinds of thoughts that are in our minds. And there was a fork in the road and we took the wrong path. Mm. Do you not think that we were pushed to the wrong path? 
by the other side. Of course, of course you're pushed and you have to know to not be, allow yourself to be pushed. But, you know, I think you uh, inevitably should, I think, that look at your own side. You know, I think I expect the, the, you know, Palestinian journalists and writers to be, and they do, you know, castigate the failures of Arafat and I saw the, uh, the I saw a lot of Palestinian uh, demonstrations against Hamas, like the Jews, uh, the Jewish not, demonstration, not, uh, standing in Grand Central and, and demonstrating against Israel. I know, I know. That is, you know, guys, just sit with your "I love Ichis and Wall" T-shirt at home if you can. Just don't bother me. That's okay. Um, yeah. Listen, we've been talking for an hour. We knew it would be how, long. How didn't we? Uh, how do we feel about this conversation, Johnny? Please tell me. Um. Well, it's good that we've had it, but it's just the... I, I, okay, what did I feel about it? I felt we got close to what's actually going on a couple of, between us, a couple of times with you when you asked me the question about occupation. And the back and forth about humanitarian aid isn't really the main thing. It's the thing that's underneath it, which is, maybe it is this thing about blame. Maybe that is the sort of heart of the matter underneath it. It's it's my fault because I took you down this road. But my point at the beginning of saying you got to get this as a war, part of it is not to focus on what has been going on for the past 20 or 30 or 40 years and know that what is happening now is a singular event. Um, but, you know, I, again, I'm the one, I'm to blame. I took you down this road. So not only of the war therapy thing, but just generally history of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Um, am I more annoyed with you now than before? I don't know. Are you more annoyed with me now? I think no, a little bit. actually less. <laughs> less for me, but I think right at the very end there, you got more annoyed with me than you were before. No, I'm actually less annoyed. I'm actually less annoyed. I feel like I've aired. <laughs> this is what I sound like when I'm less annoyed. I know it's surprising. Um, I feel like I've aired some of what I felt and actually a lot of what I felt. And I, you know, in a weird way, I'm glad that we talked. In a weird way. I like that. Um, I think it's good we talked as well. And um, like you said, it's not going away. We're going to have to do this again, probably. And that is it for this extra episode. We recorded it last week. A lot has happened since then. Most obviously, the death toll has got bigger. We'll be back with our regular episode on Friday. See you then.